Ken, we have a fascinating guest today on The Modern White Man, the podcast where we discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating equity. I was introduced to Sitsi Zawaida through a mutual friend who asked me, hey, do we interview women on the show? And I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, we do tend to talk more about race than gender in the show, so I'm excited to have Sitsi as a guest because her educational background is in gender studies. However, you know, as we know, humans are not one-dimensional. Our lives are shaped by many facets of identity, and Sitsi, being that she is from Zimbabwe, brings a really unique perspective on race and gender in the United States. Sitsi Zawaida is an advocate, business consultant, and an aspiring writer and scholar with a bachelor's in international studies and women and gender studies from Winona State University, and a master's in international studies with a specialized focus on gender-based violence from the University of San Francisco. She has worked for organizations both in the United States and Zimbabwe, doing work focused on the eradication of gender-based violence. She's currently working on a book about the concept of black implosion, which we'll learn about on today's episode, and authors the Unbowed Spirit newsletter on Substack. You know, wow, what an impressive resume, and she did not disappoint. What a great conversation. Yeah, I think the appropriate word there is wow. (laughs) That was a really amazing conversation. Like you said in that intro, she really does have a unique perspective on race and identity in the United States. Like really what stuck out to me just from the offset is she really preaches how important one's heritage and ancestors are and connecting with that and thinking about that and how that links to storytelling, how that links to one's culture, how that, you know, is is used to really see the realities of today as they are as realities, how we got here. And I she even at one point like linked to Charles Dickens, the the three ghosts from a Christmas Carol, the ghost of past, present, and future, and how she like calls herself the Ghostbuster. And you think about, you know, your past, you think about the present, but you think about the future and how it all links and how it's all important. And I really think that that's so important. And as I mentioned in the conversation with her, it's cool that we're starting to get these themes from our process and from speaking and learning from our guests. And one of the themes I think really does revolve around that storytelling. And we talked about culture and how important that is and how it really opens people up and and I think Sitsi's perspective on the specifically culture and heritage and how that really opens you up to see the social constructs and myths such as race and these hierarchies. I mean, this is definitely a must listen episode, I'd say. You know, we we post our takeaways on our blog section of the website and I'm legitimately excited to go back and listen to this again and again and kind of pull out all the insights that Sitsi provided. It was fantastic. Yeah, no doubt. The conversation with her really continued to validate what we're trying to do on the modern white man of this journey. And I like thinking about it as a journey. And she mentions the middle passage and you know, I feel like we're in this ambiguous space of leaving behind an identity of white men that that we don't want to ascribe to and to a better future of what white men could be and what identities we want to work towards. And talking with her really validates that experience of that we're in that middle passage of 
ambiguousness of we're not even sure where we're coming from a little bit and we're not even sure where we're going and we're still figuring out even where we are now but there's so much value in being in that space and i think you're right we're picking up themes when we're talking about where we're going we're starting to pick up themes of what will get us there i think we're really good at maybe too good at picking up themes of where we're coming from and i think that puts us a lot of times in too much of a negative mindset of picking up all these patterns and themes of what has gotten us here and of course that's important but i think it's just as much as important to figure out what are the patterns and culture changes that will get us to the place we want to be in the future and i think the conversation with her really helped help me envision that a little bit so i really appreciated that and also that the past is it's dynamic right it's not either or And she really helped us to realize that as well. It's not either all white people of the past are bad and contributed to creating the systems of, at least in this country, you know, slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, you know, the reconstruction and all the violence. And so it's all bad or it's all, you know, it's all good. It's it's both like for everyone. And that was really interesting that Tsitsi had as well as like every single person has a past and heritage that is both good and both bad and both beautiful and both awful. And like, it's just, it's a human experience. And so when you think about the past, it's, it's both. And it's, it's both, there's both good. There's both, there's both bad. It's important to recognize both. And that's what like really leads to this understanding of present and then hopefully a positive future. So obviously, Tsitsi really got us thinking. So it's someone you will want to follow and check out. I know it was hard to to end that. I I want to just keep talking on this intro here, but can't we? People want you got. We got to get to Tsitsi, but it is she really definitely has got our wheels turned. No doubt. Yeah. So Tsitsi, you can find out more about her. She's got a Substack page. That's where she has her work and her newsletter. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And she's also working on a book on Black Implosion, as we mentioned. As soon as that comes out, we're just going to blast that through all of our social media. And certainly you and I are going to buy a copy and read that. And as always, please reach out to us with questions, thoughts, feedback, or we always love guests or topic ideas. So you can email us directly at themodernwhiteman at gmail.com. Or you can just go to our website at www.themodernwhiteman.com. Well, let's not keep y'all waiting any longer. Here is our conversation with Sitsi. We are pleased to be joined by Sitsi Zawaira. Sitsi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. I'm glad to be here. And hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. Hello, Sitsi. Thank you for joining us. Of course. Sitsi, you have such an interesting history, and Ken and I are both really excited to learn from you today. We laid out your bio at the start of the show, but I wanted to read a portion of the about section on your Substack website. Sure. Because I believe it gives our listeners a glimpse at the true CC behind the bio. So I'll read it word for word. (laughs) Okay, let's have it. If that's all right. Yeah. So it it says, the inner truth that lives in me has an unbowed spirit. This integration includes dismantling all the illusions created by these fragmented parts and walking the middle passage with grace and gratitude. Remembering these values until I cross over to whatever that other side means and looks like for me. I just know that this journey of cultivating authenticity and ultimately embodying self-love needs a companion. So here I am, friend. 
you know, this is just so beautifully written, but I got to admit, I need a little bit of help deciphering it. <laughs> Could you just start out by helping us understand what you mean by words like integration and the middle passage and why this journey towards authenticity and self-love is so important to you? Oh, gosh. All right. So a little bit of history behind the terminology middle passage itself. It harkens back to a stage where within the transatlantic slave trade movement where People of Afro-descent were then being moved from the African shores on their way to the Americas. So I kind of used, I chose that terminology for a reason because I feel like there is, in my brain, it looks like what it looks like when a child has been taken away from their mother forcefully. And so in that stage, you're having to decide who you are, but kind of looking back at home, going, oh my God, goodbye. And yet I don't know what is going forward for me. So that forced stage of growth for me is kind of what it feels like to me. (laughs) And so when I talk about integration, I am saying the ways in which I am letting go what what I used to think about myself, who I used to believe I was. And I'm kind of trying to, to meld those two identities together of who I thought I was and who I'm now becoming. Um, But I'm in that awkward stage where I'm sitting there going, I think I have a solid footing of what that means. And yet I'm really nervous about what's waiting for me as well at the end of this, because it's going to look much different as well. So yeah, that's what that the middle passage means to me and what integration means to me. Well, that immediately resonates because that's kind of what the whole point of this podcast is, right? Like we can, I talk about quite a bit of kind of almost leaving this identity that we had before as a white male and moving towards a whole new identity and wanting to create that for ourselves and and also, you know, amongst all white men. Yeah. And it does feel like we're kind of in this this middle passage, if yeah. you will, of an an unknown and we kind of know where we're going, but also it's it feels like uncharted waters and but it also is it's exciting, but also there's that that feeling of loss or you or even that pull back to like who you used to be. So well, you I know what I call that though, Paul? I call that like the, uh, it's a journey without hubris. So when you are walking some path without hubris, like you don't have necessarily a sense of control and hubris and ego demands that you have some laid out plan that makes you feel secure. So in the middle passage, you are willing to say, oh my God, I, I actually do not know. My ego exists, but it's not the one that's driving this whole thing, which is pretty scary because you want to lean on the ego most of the times and in the middle passage when you're dedicated to it you kind of have to let it go how has that journey really led you down your you know you're you're an advocate business consultant aspiring writer working on a book is that journey really been what has been the driver and and what you're aspiring to do professionally like making an impact in, in that realm yes yes it's it's everything to me um you know, the thing is, okay, so here's what, I, here's what I like to call myself. I call myself a transplanted Black person, right? I am an immigrant. And so I call it transplanted Blackness because I have to honor the fact that my Blackness is something that was bestowed upon me by virtue of coming to this country. I did not know I was Black until I moved here. So it was an incessant reminder every day of this thing called Blackness that I knew nothing of because my identity formation was always mostly based on nationalism, like nationalistic sentiments. So I owned being African, I owned being Zimbabwean, but it wasn't, uh, the central focus of my identity was not skin-based. So having to come here and then experience some kind of fragmented aspect of my identity in that way has really informed how I want to do things because 
I have to face the truth of what blackness actually truly means to me. And so any position I have existed in has asked me to answer that question at every turn. And it's been very difficult for me because blackness is not something that I that I fully wear because of what it means historically. I know what it is to be African and I know what it is to be Zimbabwean, but being black has been very difficult for me because of what it means. So in everything that I do, I am informed by it. I'm, I'm informed by that very tough position I am existing in of how do I own being a woman Afro, of Afro-descendancy without denying my blackness? Because there's a major part of my heritage that lives on these shores that identifies as black. So that's why the middle passage matters to me so much calling it that way, because I want to honor what my ancestors who have lived on this land have gone through, but also be very cognizant of the fact that that is only one aspect of our journey as Afro-descendants. So it is heavily informed, Ken, by this healing journey I'm on now. It heavily informs everything I do now. Because in every arena I've walked into, I've had to... <laughs> this skin has probably been uh, sometimes, whether I wanted to or not, informed how people react or act around me. So it's very hard to not be informed by it. It almost sounds like you're, the middle passage and how you're approaching things is some reason mindfulness comes to mind of this sort of non-judgmental both and approach. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's just flies in the face of we've talked about white supremacy characteristics and either or being one of those. And I feel like with either or that there's maybe that do you feel like that's tied to hubris of like, it's either got to be this or that, like you talked about, I, you got to lean on something. Oh and my I God. think a lot of us struggle with complexity and mm -hmm. when we don't know the answer. And I think this, this is just like a great example of, how powerful it can be to live in this both and or non-judgment. Oh my God, it's everything. Because hubris does say, <laughs> scientific racism, for example, right? Um, for there to have been some form of justification to other another human being, you had to create an either or. You know, you had to say you are either white or anything else after that is inferior. So it is hubris. You know, it is hubris that informs that, you know, the, the the need to want to keep it on an either or. And yet we are too complex. I believe we live in the paradox, actually, as human beings. That's we are so gray. It doesn't even that's the color we actually are gray. Everything else, everything else we tack on, whether it's white, black, brown, that's just now everything else in between. But we are actually more gray than we are anything else. I mean, you talked about coming to this country and almost and, and yeah, literally being imposed upon with with blackness and race and really having no choice on that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that is part of the impetus for the book you're working on and black implosion. And, you know, I looked up the word. I just sometimes like to look up the word implosion. Ken and I like definitions. It helps kind of ground us in what we're talking about. But what I found was that just simply means to collapse violently inward and Hopefully this isn't lightening things too much, but it made me think of, you know, those videos you see of when they collapse huge buildings, you know, and they yeah. kind of crumble in on themselves. Yeah. So I imagine for that people, for people, this experience might be that there's just there's a lot happening on the inside, mm -hmm. but you don't really know it or can't see it on the outside. There's nothing really going outward. Yeah. And so could you tell us a little bit more about what implosion looks like, feels like for black folks and then. Why do we as white people, why should we be aware of this? So I loved it, by the way, once I saw that you had that analogy, because to a certain extent, it is as dramatic as it looks like. If you've ever seen a building, 
you know, collapse like that. It does actually feel like that internally. So I love that you did it. I actually was like, you know what? I should use that because the crumbling, the idea of crumbling is kind of how it felt like when I started excavating and looking at myself in the journey, like it was like almost like a, a, a slow crumble. And um, what it looks like on the outside is that when people see you fall apart, the first question they ask is like, I didn't even know she was hurting this way. Like, uh, yeah, because the, <laughs> the crumbling, right, was happening slowly, but surely all you got to see was the catastrophic, dramatic falling apart of a human being. So I decided to name them Black implosions for that very reason that I feel like sometimes for people of color, for Black people specifically, that when you are trying to experience or go through what I call a full emotional palette, you sometimes also you kind of bump, you know, bump heads with resistance from people because it's like the moment you want to feel a feeling, you kind of have to move on to the next thing because, you know, life is happening as you're trying to feel something. So what ends up happening is you teach yourself to immediately stuff some things down and move on to the next because you've got stuff to do. So the more you do that, the more you're building these small little places that I call implosions that by the time they come out of your body, to some people, it looks so dramatic. But to you, you've had several moments of exploding inwardly until it comes out verbally sometimes or through actions that to other people seem disruptive. But uh, you've already felt something within you, though, that was dying within you. And so it just comes. You're meeting me at the tail end of an experience. So I call them implosions for that reason, because that is actually what they are. That is the reality of what processing or healing looks like for Black people, at least from my, um, from my experience. And the reason why I believe that white people should know about this is because I think sometimes when, when we talk about mental health in this country, we need to desegregate data sometimes when we talk about what mental health stats actually mean. Who are we actually talking about when we mean when we when we mention the idea of people falling apart? Because as far as black people are concerned, you actually cannot afford to fall apart in this country. There's work and life waiting for you. So mental health safety or mental health as a topic mm, starts to feel like an area of privilege in some ways because you're like, well, you can afford to fall apart, but I can't. So I I think for white people, the understanding here that needs to happen about Black implosions is to um, to continue to humanize Black folks, even when you don't understand what is actually happening. Or if you don't come from a home where someone is can tell you what's going on and you don't understand, it is important that you understand what's going on, the inner workings of a Black person, so you are able to create space, because you don't always have to understand what's going on with me, but you do have to respect the process I'm going through. And what that looks like is honoring the fact that we don't process information the same way because we are not also experiencing life the same way or experiencing pain the same way. So I think I wanted to make sure that that part of it is understood, that our bodies don't house pain the same way and we also don't live it out loud the same way. So I think it's imperative for us to understand that as people, especially in the workplace. Immediately, what the light bulb came on for me is when you said when there's when there is an implosion, or I guess when you say when you get to the point of explosion, that's a form of healing. That just yeah. blew me away. I never thought of that as a form of healing. And now that I think about it, that that makes sense. That is what we as humans do naturally. 
I think of just, you know, yelling into the void, right? Like the, the, the screaming, the yelling is a form of healing. And I, I guess the anti-blackness thoughts that I've been conditioned into have thought like when someone gets angry, right? It's well, first of all, just anger is or that sort of explosion puts you on, on the defensive, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and protection, first mm-hmm. of all, and then the anti-blackness that that comes into play is, of course, feeding the stereotype of angry black woman or just that black men are dangerous or violent, right? Yeah. Yeah. But what you just said just really turned everything on its head for me of interpreting that and seeing that as a moment of healing. And then thinking about everything that has led up to that point, that this isn't something a reaction just to what happened in this moment. Yeah. It's weeks, months, years, yeah. and generational yeah. trauma, right? Absolutely. Like, and generations. And so thank you for that, because that that really did change my perspective completely. Oh, and please let me, um, and let me add this too, Paul. Let me add this too. That most of the times when you are processing this, you're also contending with two things in your brain too. That if I do actually experience the full palette of an emotion, am I safe enough to do so? Because the moment that I do it, you know, I don't know what the interpretation is going to be at the receiving end of this. For most people, like when we watch movies, I don't know if you guys do this, like when we watch movies, like especially like vengeance movies, where the white guy goes out and avenges like the death of his wife or something. It's probably some of the most violent work you will ever see. And yet people kind of go rough or I would have done that if somebody had killed my wife or like John Wick killed my dog. I would go after whoever did it. Right. And people get excited. Like, oh, look at him. He's, he's expressing what anger looks like when someone has done something against you. But in white imaginations, the idea of me processing a feeling, if you look at it as you did something to me and maybe at the end of it, I may want to throw a shoe your direction. Right. It's not going to look like me processing a full emotion. It's just going to, you're going to feel attacked by me immediately. And yet the purpose of that cathartic experience can be seen as almost the same way. I need to get to a point where I can release an emotion, truly release it. And that may look like me throwing a shoe your direction. And for you to be able to know it wasn't personal. Can you do that? Like it wasn't personal. (laughs) I was experiencing a feeling. And I threw a shoe your direction. I didn't hit you, but I just threw a shoe your direction. I'm sorry. All I can think of was awesome powers when <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it, but the guy throws it. Honestly, who throws a shoe? Sorry, you can cut that out. <laughs> the damage that's going through my mind. This black woman does. My black mom does. She's, she's thrown shoes my direction like since I was a kid. Like when she's processing something, I know it's not about me, but she needs to release something. And so she just throws it. And you just kind of learn to be like, okay, so that just happened. Um, But she is, in that moment, she's saying I'm human. Even though I'm your mother, you have pissed me off and I need to get to the end of this feeling so that I can come back and mother you again. So Sitsi, is a form of Black implosion inevitable for everyone? And kind of why I'm thinking of that is because when I think about white people on their journey to be you know, anti-racist, inclusive, equitable. There are inevitable feelings, I believe, like guilt and defensiveness that'll come up and you have to work through because it is a form of healing. And I think that that's so, you know, powerful to think of it that way. Yeah. Is it necessary or inevitable for everyone to go through as they kind of discover their identity through their blackness? It Does it just come up in different forms? Like, what does that look like? So in a perfect world, I would want black implosions to not exist at all. I I would want there to be a recognition that I'm only doing this because the way society is established, 
I need to figure out a way to process my feelings and wake up the next day and still have a life to live. They are inevitable because the system is sort of set up in that way. That's the inevitability. Now, are they necessary? No. And I I don't want there to be Black implosions. It is an unnecessary way to experience emotion when you are a human being who is living amongst other human beings and should have the right to process a feeling normally. So they are inevitable because of that. So to answer your question, Ken, then, yeah, they are inevitable. But it is my hope that they don't, it doesn't have to be this way because I don't want it to be this way. And if we get to a more equitable, fair world, there won't need to be different implosions or these really tough experiences in doing identity work. It would happen less and less. So I like to call myself, I think I told this to Paul when you spoke a little bit, that I am like, I'm like DEI adjacent, right? So (laughs) what that means to me is DEI work, I think for a while there, initially, yes, it was in response, right, to racial inequity as it was being experienced here in the U.S. And then it moved to a broader sense of inequities. It included any, for any group that has felt discriminated against got included. So I go to DEI adjacent because my identity is the central focus of my healing. So I call that adjacent because I'm going to be harping a lot on who I am as an African woman and who I am as as a a person who wears this skin. I believe like what you guys are doing with, you know, with a modern white man, you are making whiteness and being a man the central focus of how to get to this other side, right? The crossover side. And in that way, we mirror each other because I'm trying to say that for me to get to a true sense of identity formation, I'm going to use my Africanness and my womanness as the tool to get me to that place. You're going to have to be willing, though, to talk about the truth about your ancestry, though, in order to do that. That's why I mentioned that topic with you guys, that I think with DEI work, we tend to end up being very um, detached to the central spirit of who we are as human beings, because we're trying to keep it, we're trying to keep it very logical and very professional. And I'm arguing there is no such thing. This is as personal as we can get, you know? And so I have to harp on my identity. I have to talk about it from a point of being African and being a woman in order for me to, for me to be as honest as I can and connect with you as well. So I think, yeah, there is, there is no other way to do this, Ken, to me at least. I know Paul and I are both super pumped about the idea of ancestry and heritage. So let's jump to it. Okay. You know, you, as you mentioned, you know, I, as you say, it's really important on allyship, healing in the workplace. And yeah. Paul and I talk all the time about the workplace. And like I couldn't agree more yeah. how there's no separation there, right? Like, yeah. you, like bringing your authentic selves and just even like thinking about the time, how much time in our lives do we spend at work? So the idea that somehow is separate from our identities or our experiences is kind of silly if you think about it, it that is. way. But anyway, <laughs> so because, you know, um, um, a lot of our listeners, I, I think, are really following the modern white man for the workplace is specifically like thinking about how can we be equitable in the workplace? What do we do? Yeah. So can you talk more about ancestry and heritage and, and why that is so important? Well, because whenever we talk about work, the the fundamental aspect of what does work even mean? I mean, it goes back to even how this country was built, 
right? The idea of indentured servitude, white people were also experiencing this, right? But at that time, that was what work was. You know, it, it was indentured servitude. You worked whatever, I don't know, seven, eight years. Then you got your freedom. That is what the precepts of work were. Then we go into the times where the factory industry was created. Someone was saying even children can come and work because at that time to build America, you needed kids, okay? You're four years old. You're old enough to come in and work <laughs> and add to the family, okay? And so the idea of what work, the ethos of work, we can't ever separate it from the fundamental documents of this country, right? Of like it was built on the idea of you work to provide, create freedom for yourself and for your family, and then we keep it moving. So I, I brought up this whole idea of um, ancestry because I think sometimes when we start talking about the workplace, we want to detach so much from who we are as people when your professional ethos really sometimes can be in conflict with what your professional, uh, your personal, I mean, ethos may resemble. So you can go into work and fully be a man, a white man who believes women are badass. Oh, wait, can I cuss on this thing? Because Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we're all about we're all about <laughs> we're all about supporting badass women. So you can Thank go you. ahead and say that. So, yeah. Like when, so when you're a man who believes this to your core, and that is part of your personal ethos, and you go into a workplace that still says a white man has to earn more money than anybody else, that the white man's wage, like let's just go straight to wage, that the fundamental aspect of your work, whether you are doing it to a place that is acceptable and worth rewarding, we use white men as the ones who are like right at the top. So they earn top dollar and everybody else, you kind of have to follow suit. So professional ethos could say that, well, this is what we work in. We got to do what we got to do. So you're coming into work being half of who you are because you're not, you can't show up as a white man who believes, you know, women are badass because you are bumping into a professional ethos that says otherwise. So how can we live in a, in, a, in a society that keeps saying, right, that when you go to work, you got to keep it professional, keep it professional when the consequences of keeping it professional are also for me to stifle down who I am as a person. So when I ask you guys about what you know, okay, so let me throw this question back at you now. When I was asking about your ancestry, what do you know about your ancestry? Well, it's interesting because Paul and I, so this is episode 33 and we started talking to folks for probably like 10 episodes or so, but those first 20 some really Paul and me doing some like identity work together and kind of working through like who we are, what do we want to be and how our identity is both white, cisgender, heterosexual males confident in that. And we actually had an episode on culture. And we did like a little bit of research, went back and we looked at our ancestry. Like, what do we know about where we came from? And my dad's like cousin or aunt is kind of old school and has a big binder that I went through and stuff. And so going through that process, I, I understood a lot more about my heritage and kind of where I went, came from, at least as, you know, as far back as like early 1800s. So nothing, you know, crazy, but still better than nothing. And I, I love it as our listeners that have been with us since the beginning know I'm just like a huge history person. And so like yeah. thinking about where my family was and different history events and everything was, was pretty powerful. So actually like through this podcast, I dug into it a little bit more. Oh, that's good. So what did you find out if you care to share? Yeah, absolutely. I am, uh, I come from a lot of places. <laughs> so essentially it's, uh, my primary ones are, um, 
Czech Republic. I am very Czech, like my grandma, 100% Czech. I'm very German. I'm very Irish. So like those three. And my Irish family and German family met in Southern Minnesota when they came from Pennsylvania in the early 1800s. And they helped to find this, you know, found this little town on the Mississippi. And it was my grandpa's dad who moved up in the late 1800s to, to South St. Paul and the Twin Cities. And then my grandpa, my dad. So I found out that it was pretty cool to, to know it. Like my family came to the U.S. in some cases in 1830. And that's very recent in like the history of the world. And so to really think about kind of that cultural aspects of that German and Irish and how that still kind of has played in our family for such a long time and Mm -hmm. what that really means is kind of what, what I found through that process. Awesome. How about you, Paul? Well, I don't know much. I, Mm -hmm. yeah, I did a little bit of research and found out just about, you know, countries and where my ancestors came from. And so I'm very much on the Norwegian side. So Swedish, Norway, Scandinavian countries, right? Big farming, at least on my dad's side, a big farming history with my family. Yeah, honestly, I have have so much more to learn. And I think for me going through that process, before I could even learn about my culture, I had to first off understand that number one, I have a culture, I have culture and I have a heritage and I have ancestry. Like that was one of my first kind of being shaken out of this kind of almost like this white imagination you've mentioned earlier of like, what culture white people don't have culture, right? Like first off. And then secondly, working through some of that guilt and shame about being white and being European. And of course what Europeans have done to black folks in this country. And so I kind of had to like, and still am, but I kind of had to work through all that to get to the point of actually learning about my heritage. And honestly, I got to the point where this may seem kind of silly, but it was really significant for me. Like I looked, I kind of studied Scandinavian architecture Okay. And I just loved learning about it. I lo- and I love the architecture and and it also kind of helped me detach a little bit from whiteness, which we know is a myth, right? Like it's not it's a it's a it's a made up thing <laughs> to put simply. And so finally I was like, oh wait a minute, right? Like I, I could finally detach myself from that, which I think helped me and sort of start to see myself as someone who's even connected to ancestry. That was even new to me too, like thinking about people have come before me. So it was, yeah, I was a powerful experience and still on that journey, but it was really, really fascinating and helpful for me with my own identity development process. So you have said so many delicious things in there. I just have to touch on like a couple of them, right? (laughs) Because this is why I am pushing for the idea of having ancestry and heritage be at the forefront of how we talk about this. Because as long as you are harping on your identity as a white person and just basing it on your whiteness, we're going to be stuck, right? Because you have to be able to know that when you go to Europe, most Europeans are not calling themselves white. They call themselves by their nationalistic identity. I'm Irish, I'm Scottish, I'm British, I'm German. Most of the times that is the leading way of identifying that's there. So we know, as you mentioned, that whiteness is a myth that was created by scientific racism. And so now we go back to what I was telling you about with my struggle with owning the title black, because blackness is also there for a myth because it was created for the same reason whiteness was created, right? To make sure that we have an either or. So if whiteness exists to say it's white supreme, you know, it's white supremacy because it's better than everybody else, blackness then exists in this space of like, you're the one who's lower. So you have to remember that your blackness 
is about that. That is the truth of who you are as a person. So allyship for me, I like to say that allyship is a road to redemption for white people. <laughs> it's, it's in DEI work, it may not be seen like that, but for me, redemption is like an action that has to do with either saving someone or being saved from something. And so allyship for white people is saving themselves from themselves, right? But for that to even happen, there has to be an actual acknowledgement that whiteness as a concept has some erroneous, erroneous ways of existing in this world. So for those we immediately feel offended and feel like it's a personal attack, again, whiteness is a concept. I'm talking about your skin. I don't know if you saw this. I, in my book, I write this thing called Unzip My Skin, right? There's a chapter in there where I say, what would my skin say if I had an opportunity to unzip it? And it's, it's the one that speaks for me so that people stop thinking that every time I say something, it's like a personal attack, right? So if white people are also able to unzip their skin and our skins are the ones that are talking, not us, and all of our prejudice, I mean the skin and how it exists in this world with all the constructs of skin, we, we would quickly actually understand that, you know, for those who keep thinking that racism exists in the minds of black people, like this, we're not creating this thing. Right. When I moved to this country, I didn't immigrate over here saying, "Okay, I'm going to go look for racism. That's what I'm going to do with my life is look for racism when I move to America. Right. So I I am not someone who is intentionally looking for this. It it found me. I was minding my own business as an African. Next thing you know, uh, someone threw the N word my way. And I'm just like, wait, what happened? So so I always say this. Oh, my God. Let me just I swear I have a point. Let me say this to you. So I say <laughs> this is a joke, but it's not. But I call myself a ghostbuster of kinds, right? <laughs> I say that I exist in the space where, do you guys know Charles Dickens? I say that I exist as the ghost of Christmas past, present, and then the Christmas of yet to come because Scrooge here is white people, right? I get to come in and tell, <laughs> I get to come in and, and sort of play all the different parts of the past and then of the future and to kind of throw it in people's faces that I'm not, we're not making anything up here. There's no need. I benefit nothing by being an immigrant and then start talking about racism. So it's there. So I'm a ghostbuster for those who believe whiteness is some kind of boogeyman or something. It exists. Okay. Racism does. So the importance of, of looking at allyship as more of a redemption path here for me is you would have to first admit that there's something wrong going on and that's where we get stuck. Because most people immediately feel the need to defend, like, but it's in the past and I'm not doing it. It's my, it happened in the past. Okay, so now we go back again, ancestry and heritage. So if we're going to talk about this, then you have to know that is where you are coming from. Those are your people who did it. You can't keep removing yourself from the conversation by saying it's them over there and now we exist in this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's in your blood. It's in your blood. It's in your bloodline. And then for some white people in their bloodline exists people like William Wilberforce, the, the British dude who was really imperative towards the abolition of, of slavery as it happened in, in the UK. So that exists in some white people's bloodline too. I, I think the idea of being able to see this as a redemption path is that so that we can see that guilt, white guilt or white shame has no place in processing any of this. It only keeps us all stuck because... You have to be able to look at the truth of your ancestry and go, okay, listen, I come from an ancestry of 
full of people who killed a bunch of other people. And it's the truth of my story. Now, who am I, though, in this process? I am a descendant. That means I have an option here of how I want to live my life next. So I'm not interested in guilt tripping anybody because I feel like sometimes DEI work can. Please hear me. I got a lot of DEI friends and they may come for me for this. I feel like (laughs) that DEI can, DEI work can sometimes keep us stuck in the feeling badness of things like, oh my God, I suck, I suck, I suck. And it's like, okay, now that I've told you, you suck 50 million times. I'm not interested though in you sitting in that place. I need you to be able to process the feelings of that your ancestors did sucky things. And then let's have a conversation about that. How do we move forward? Because most of the stuckness comes from that, from a lot of lazy thinking. And the lazy thinking here is when you don't want to just admit even the fundamental truths, like racism is real right now. Done. Now, what do we do? Gosh, there are like 17 different <laughs> rabbit holes that I would just love to go down. That I counted was 14, so you found a few 14, more than me. Yeah, I've got yeah. three more than you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's rare, Paul. You always have more than me. Uh, that's amazing. I mean, the um, unzipping your skin, I think that's a really powerful yeah. visual that help, can help folks. Be, being a ghostbuster, like yeah. thinking about the past, present, and future. I love that. You know, just like overall, if I had to take all those rabbit holes and like bunch it, you know, a consistent theme throughout Paul and my process of doing this podcast and talking to folks that I think this this also falls into is when we think about, you know, ancestry and heritage, linking it to personal culture and shared culture and also to storytelling and how impactful that is. We just had a guest Dante Curtis, Hmm. who really talked about how talking about culture is one of the first things that he does to break down defensiveness and open people up to, to then, okay, let's talk about white supremacy and how that then links to it. And I think that's so powerful to just start off the conversation talking about ancestry, heritage. Where do you all come from? What do you value? You know, even what do you like see as your shared culture with your friends and family today? So, you know, you have those two ghosts right there, like the past and the present and then, you know, future. I just, the more and more I'm having these conversations and especially with what you just said, I really think that being able to just like starting out that way, instead of like you said, like, all right, let's start, you know, let's sit down and let's start feeling really guilty, everybody. (laughs) We created a terrible thing. But instead, I think that it really like helps us to open up and recognize that it is a concept. It's a social construct, you know, whiteness, blackness, race, and and bringing in that personal experience into it, I I think is energizing in a way. Like, you know, like after what you just said, I, you know, I'm like excited and and I want to talk about it. And I, I just think that that's really, really powerful. I want to exist in a world in which when I walk into a room with all of my Africanness, you know, all of this wonderfulness you're looking at, I want for that to be something that is, I'm not ashamed of it. I can tell you that I'm not ashamed of it. There's nothing for me to hide in. I occupy space fully understanding, you know, that I also come from ancestry with people who, who fought for this, who died for it. But also when I go down my own lineage, yeah, I also got some, like, to, to quote Kendrick Lamar, I've got some murderers in my uh, lineage as well. <laughs> so you have to, like, understand that the truth of us as human beings sometimes becomes super convoluted when we don't 
when we don't allow ourselves to own the completeness of who we are. So to be able to say, I come from, from ancestry that has some very paradoxical ways of being is imperative because then we, again, it removes hubris. Because if I come to the tables acting like somehow, okay, here's, here's a controversial thing that's happening right now. Have you guys seen the trailer of um, The Woman King? No. You should check it out. It's this new movie okay. that talks about the da- the Dahomey Empire. Uh, it talks about the f- they are known as having held some of the most powerful, powerful female soldiers, kind of like the Dora Milaje and the Black Panther, right? The movie The Black Panther. And a lot of people are coming up in celebration to, oh my God, Black representation. It's amazing. We get to see more of it. And of course, because I know a lot of African history, because I grew up on the African continent, my pushback immediately was like, um, okay, so it's true that the Dahomey Empire was an amazing, but they are also right at the helm of participating in the transatlantic slave trade movement. They were selling their own people. So let's be clear here. We can't keep talking about ourselves in silos and, and in convenient ways about our past. You know, to be like, well, yeah, am I taking away from the fact that they're badass warriors? No, but they also did participate in selling Black people, the very same Black people who are currently in this country suffering from something that their ancestors did. You know, so white people, yes, are involved in this. (laughs) So are Africans. And I believe that if we're going to really look at the effects and actually talk about our healing, we have to be able to tell this truth, but here is where it gets a little dicey. You want to be able to tell the truth of who you are, but you know whiteness is going to come right back and tell you, oh, you see, you see, Black people, (laughs) Black on Black crime, you know how it goes. When we want to say something, then people immediately go, see, Black people, you're awful too. So why are you over here talking about us white people like we are the devil? And it's like, okay, that's not what we're doing. You make it very unsafe for us to actually tell our full story because The moment I want to tell the true story, I know what's coming next is an invalidation of what what has happened. Can multiple truths be true at the same time? Yes. Black people did participate in the selling of their own people. Absolutely, they did. The transatlantic slave movement didn't just happen because kings and queens were also not aware of what was happening on the continent. There was an awareness there. But what is the prevailing ethos that is running rampant in the global market system right now or just the world in general? It's whiteness. So we have to be able to say that in in the same breath that, yes, Black people are flawed. No one is denying that. But who has more power right now to control the actual narrative and consequently how people live their lives? Right now, it is whiteness. So... Whiteness is not unique either, right? We've got Persian empires, Roman empires, blah, blah, blah. So we now know enslavement is not something that white people invented. But at the same time, it is the predominant system that is existing in this lifetime. So when we call upon white people, and I know a lot of people always are like, man, people talk about us all the time. It's like, yeah, because right now that is the truth we are existing in. So if we are going to talk about our heritage and about our ancestry, we need to be able to hearken to our identities so that we can be strengthened, you know, in how we move forward. And like what you said, Ken, so that when we start getting excited about talking about ourselves, 
I'm not interested in talking to a white person who's not able, who's who feels like they can't love the fact that they're Irish or German. Go ahead and love that you're Irish and German. Walk into a room with that confidence. But I believe it's because you're detached from your ancestry why it is easy for white people sometimes to want black people to get over the emotional toll of racism. Because if you're detached from your identity as a German person, and all you're doing is walking around with whiteness as your central identity marker, you will not understand the effects of spiritual violence on your soul. You know, you being displaced from your home as well as white people, we are all suffering because of that too. Because y'all moved over here, you know, trying to create something new and you are running from something as well. So the story of America is also a fear. It's not just a freedom, it's a fear. Well, it brings me back to when you mentioned the hubris and ego and leaning on that. And, and just as you're talking, that's what whiteness is for yeah. so many of us is, is something we cling to as like something to make us feel better about ourselves, to feel powerful, to mm -hmm. feel bigger than this. I mean, that's what talk about white supremacy right but it's all a myth and i think it's so scary for white folks to let that go because then like and then now now what do we cling to now what makes us feel valuable what now what makes me feel powerful if i don't have that that's obviously a lie there's so many other things that can help us feel powerful and valuable and i think what we then move towards is that new identity of being anti-racist and being anti-sexist and yeah. and then what Ken and I talk about so much here is we we have to understand how much that the system of systems of oppression and, and race harm us too as white people. And that that helps, I think, helps us detach a little bit from that. I, I wanted to kind of switch gears. I don't know if you call it that, but we do admittedly talk a lot about race on this podcast. But being that it's the modern white man, it's also about being anti-sexist and talking about gender and obviously that how that's a that's a social construct. But we kind of want to talk a little bit about what it means to be anti-sexist. And, you know, that's not a term that has been popularized as much, I would say, in the DEI space. But obviously, it's still very important work that needs to get done. So at a very basic level, you know, we refer to be being an anti-sexist as similar to how Ibram X. Kendi defines anti-racist as one who supports an anti-sexist policy through their actions or expresses an anti-sexist idea. But, you know, your educational background, as we mentioned is in gender studies yes. and has a focus on gender-based violence. Yes. So we're really excited to hear from you on what does it mean to you mm -hmm. to be anti-sexist? Like, what is that in your own words? And what can white men do to be anti-sexist, especially, you know, in the workplace? Do we have enough, we have enough time? Can you just summarize this in about 45 <laughs> seconds for us? Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'll just I will say I will use I will, so there's a gentleman named Franz Fanon who he is a Pan Africanist whom I adore, and I will use what he said. He said that you know at the end of the day, most forms of exploitation resemble each other because they're done against a human being. So that's just the basis of what exploitation actually truly is. And so he believed that racism is absolute. It's absolute because you either are a racist or you are not a racist. And so what that means for me then to what you said, that basically anti-racist could also be like kind of like the precepts of it could also be anti-sexist. So to me, being anti-sexist is being able to say to yourself that sexism is absolute. You either are sexist or you are not. I have never in my life conditionally experienced misogyny. I've fully, fully experienced it. It's never been a partial experience. It's been a whole experience of misogyny. So when you are anti-sexist, you are just being able to stand on that fundamental truth that sexism is an absolute experience 
And when you do not admit that, you are saying that I get to experience my citizenship as a woman conditionally. And to you, you're saying that's justified. That's what that means to me. So when working to be anti-racist and anti-sexist and overall create more equity, I, I really like that, that quote I'm paraphrasing that when you are suppressing someone, you know, different identities, they're all human beings. So it's essentially the same, the same way to go, go about it. And so when we're working to be anti-sexist, is it similar process that we've been talking about throughout our conversation, you know, thinking about our own background or culture or heritage and looking at it from the full lens about how we have had privileges, the history around how different identities have been suppressed in different ways. It's, yeah. Is it follow the same type of narrative to really help, you know, get to that other side? So one of the fathers of the Negritude movement, who I really love, his name is called Aime Césaire, right? And he talked a lot about how what he called the de-civilized white colonialist, right? This, this is an archetype. And what he believed about that archetype was that for the colonialists to believe that they were coming over there to sort of civilize someone was the gag, right? That you, there is no civilizing anyone when you use barbaric methods to civilize that person. So he believed that in the process of the, the white colonialists trying to civilize Black people, he himself became uncivilized. And in that same regard, I believe in, man, in men's attempt to civilize women <laughs> or control, subdue, make women behave a certain way that they themselves are doing the same thing to themselves. You don't, you don't practice that level of violence and harm on another being and not, and not, it not, have, not have any blowback from it. So I do believe, yes, that, you know, being anti-sexist, we could follow the same path by looking at our ancestry and looking at our heritage, but it may be a little glim. There's a joke that I have of like, I believe that somewhere, somehow there's a manual that exists that all men on planet earth have read because y'all seem to agree when it comes to like subduing women, all of y'all, it doesn't matter which, every country, there's been some level of violence against women that has been practiced. And I don't know what that manual is. We have to find it because you guys need to stop reading this thing. It is poisonous, but it does exist. And so I, it feels a little glib for me to, to say, can we use ancestry and heritage to help us? Because, oof, because the history of who we are when it comes to how we've treated women can be a little tricky unless we start being very specific to certain cultures like Native American cultures where the matriarchal side of the family was where you would draw a lot of the leadership from. Now there, we can, we've got, we, we can make some headway there because there is heritage and ancestry that has shown that female leadership is something that can lead to success. And there are other tribes even, African tribes, where women are actual leaders. It is, it is not a unique phenomenon either, but it's just that I feel like for us to be anti-sexist, I feel may take a lot more work. And it's sad for me to say that. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It, uh, it, it's almost painful to stop this conversation because it's just, I wanted to keep talking with you and it's, you know, in respect of your time and our listeners time, we yeah. are at time. 
Yes. But wow, what a absolute pleasure, Sitsi, it has been to have you on as a guest. Thank you. I mean, my my wheels are going crazy right now in my mind and brain, and I just can't wait to listen back to this and just keep learning from you. And when your book comes out, and we'll share that. And this has just been amazing. Thank you so much. Oh my God, thank you. Thank you. This is, I'm hoping that this is exactly what will continue to happen, that they, we no longer have fear to, to talk to each other about these things. So I'm so glad I was able to, to be here. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what I was feeling too. It just feels great to be able to speak openly and honestly. And, and, and I just love, again, the thread of storytelling and the importance of like, just knowing our stories and feeling, yeah. you mentioned earlier in the episode, feeling safe to tell your story. And I think that's something that everyone deserves. Like everyone deserves that safety to tell their story. Absolutely. And I think there could be a lot of improvements in the way businesses and companies go about doing DEI work. If that's part of the goal is for everybody to feel like they're feeling, they feel safe to tell their story. And you've definitely made me feel safe to tell my story. <laughs> I probably say the same for Ken and appreciate you yes. telling your story. And yeah. And yeah, I just, let me, uh, let me just end by saying this to you guys. All people, all people desire recognition in one way or another. We desire that. And so what violence does in its many forms, whether it's spiritual violence or mental violence, what it does, it, it, it either bestows or removes recognition, you know, from each other. So I think at the end of the day, we are trying to get to a place of reciprocity in how we engage with each other. I'm not trying to be better than you or be valued more. I just want to exist. And, and exist without having to worry about you looking at me or me looking at you. I just want to exist. So that desire to be recognized, I feel like can humanize this conversation. So we stop thinking it's some esoteric thing that's happening out there. We all want that to be recognized in our lives. That's a desire we all can share and that can equal the playing field here. And so we stop thinking this is bigger than what it actually is. So thank you so much for 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 having me just you know express my desire to be recognized <laughs> that's a beautiful way to end that was wonderful yes. thank you so much Titsi. thank you guys what did we tell y'all that was one conversation wasn't it i mean talk about packing in a lot of info in less than 60 minutes yeah that, i felt like that was like 15 conversations within one somehow yeah and it could have been 78 yeah we somehow held back but there's so many rabbit holes that we could have gone i mean it was like every every like sentence was jam-packed with something it was that's what i felt about that conversation it was so valuable and I definitely, as I said at the beginning, I really want and looking forward to, you know, we post our takeaways from episodes. And I think that because the Seatsy was so thoughtful and provided so many great ideas and takeaways, really like writing those up, I think will be really helpful. So y'all should check that out in our blog section. Yeah, you know, like she said, towards the end of the episode, it's just so important that we're able to have these conversations openly. And it's just really, I feel like it's a real privilege. And with privilege, I feel like comes responsibility, you know, for us to to have these conversations with people of all different backgrounds. And I think getting her perspective as someone who's coming into this country, 
right, from Africa within our generation, right, within our lifetime, and to hear her talk about how she didn't go looking for racism, right, and talking about how other people in other countries talk about their heritage and how they identify themselves. I think it really is helpful for us to get out of our bubble that we've been really conditioned in when, when we talk about racism and, and when we talk about sexism and to really gain perspective. And yeah, a lot of perspective was gained through this conversation. And it's like we've said throughout our process and this conversation I think has really reinforced it is what we're really all about and doing here is culture change in a way we're creating a new culture where it is the norm to have these types of conversations and to be vulnerable and to tell your story and to listen and validate other people's stories and the more you do it just the more natural and organic it feels and do it with people with different identities and backgrounds and cultures and it's just so enriching you know it's an enriching experience it's like that i think of that line where it's the diversity in the united states of america could be its greatest strength if it was realized that way instead of being weaponized like it really is just an enriching experience so i'm very grateful to Sitsi and for this whole process thanks everybody you know what helps spread the word modern white man you all know it by this point paul what is it stars Does it have to do some of the stars yes five to be particular five, five to be exact yeah yeah exact Not just any number of stars <laughs> if you really want to spread this word and we all know people want to hear from Sitsi, five stars is really the way to go we really appreciate that yeah, she said after we stopped recording that part of this, which she's excited about, is to invest in souls. So if you want to be a part of the investment in souls, hit that five-star button because there'll be more souls to be touched and invested in to yeah. spread the word. And not only, like, of course, we're not here to just to amplify what we want to say. We we want to amplify the folks we have on this show. That's a huge part of what we're doing. So this isn't just about when you hit those five stars, it's not just about, hey, let's get the modern white man out there. It's about let's getting Sitsi out there, right? Let's get word about her work and who she is and the book that she's writing and all of our other guests. So just think about that as just, you know, another maybe form of motivation for you to scroll down a little bit farther and on, on our page and hit those five stars we really would appreciate that wow what a five-star pitch that was <laughs> that just, <laughs> just i just winged it i want to go yeah. get those five stars now and it's true you... we want to amplify we want to amplify voices yeah. i mean truly that's like how our we're like kind of shifting here on the modern white man and that's a good that's wow paul just Bring out your best, uh, best stuff. You saved your Five best for last. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. Now I'm, I'm gassed. I got nothing else. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, you know, you can see parts or this full conversation with Sitsi on our YouTube channel. It is called The Modern White Man. Please also feel free to stay in touch with us by going to our website www.themodernwhiteman.com you can sign up for our newsletter reach out to us as paul said in the intro if you have guests that you have in mind that we that you think would be good for us to talk to we'd love that amplify more voices and again check out our takeaways with cc on our website as well in the blog section am i missing anything i think that's it paul just our tagline 
You know what it is at this point, right? Yeah, I do. What? Actually, I, I don't even remember. Stay humble. <laughs> stay humble. <laughs> it's, it's keep learning, stay keep humble, learning, and stay do humble. the work. Do the work.